This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone, on this uh, beautiful sunny November, December day. Oh my goodness, it's December already. It's December 2nd. Uh, anyway, be that as it may. Um, recently re- released statistics from uh, Statistics Canada sh- dating to 2021 show that uh, Newfoundland and Labrador had the highest percentage increase in homicide rates over the previous year. There were 788 homicides in Canada that year, 29 more than the previous year, and the third consecutive increase according to figures from StatsCan. Newfoundland and Labrador recorded Eight murders in 2021, double the number from 2020. British Columbia at 24% and Ontario at 15% had the second and third highest percentage increase. The census metropolitan areas within the largest percentage increase in the rate from the previous year were Windsor at 101%, St. John's at 100%, and London at 98%. Well, according to Statistics Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador recorded no murders involving gang activities, down from one in 2020. At the national level, the rate of gang-related homicides was the highest recorded in Canada since comparable data was first collected in 2005. Well, here to break some of that down is Assistant Professor and Undergraduate Director of Criminology with Memorial University's Department of Sociology, Dr. Adrian Peters. Hello. Hello, how are you? Great, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate this. So I guess for starters, a little introduction. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in in criminology. Oh my goodness, Linda, that's a great starting place and a great question. Um, So to give some full disclosure, I guess, um, I am a resident and I'm also born and raised, I guess, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so I, yeah, I was fortunate to spend my childhood here with my family and my community um, and just kind of, I guess, started making some observations in my own small town um, about just people's experiences and lives. Um, and then I proceeded through on into high school and um, just happened to have an interest very early in in criminology and or what we criminalized and or how we thought about it. So I ended up then learning um, just again by luck and fortune, I guess, about criminology and what it was and then ended up pursuing this um, in my undergraduate studies and then went on um, kind of just falling in love, I guess, with how we think about these issues and question them and then pursuing then graduate work in this area. And then I was fortunate enough to then have a position come up at Memorial University where I was able to return home um, or to my home um, to maybe do some of this work locally or think about it locally. Yeah, and uh, um, so at a very young age, you started to pick up on things and realize it's not just somebody being a bad person and uh, that sort of thing. There were other factors involved. Yes, and and I think many of the factors that we're talking about um, in the news and that we just heard on the the news kind of cycle just then and, and that we're reading about right now in our in our world and and it really all goes back to to things like how we live our everyday lives and how individuals and groups within that are kind of ex- having various experiences and so just growing up again in a small town. Again, these problems aren't necessarily unique or these challenges aren't unique to Newfoundland and Labrador. They do exist everywhere, but they just feel they feel very pronounced in our communities, I find, because they're very visible. I saw kids at school, kids I went to classes with, my neighbors. Like we're we're all very connected here, which is which is really 
fantastic in our strengths, but you also then get to see inside inside some people's lives and, and some of the challenges that they may be having. And then to think about that, how we then respond to those challenges and or often judge those challenges and then end up kind of criminalizing them. For sure, because, uh, you know, especially in smaller communities where you know everybody and you know the histories of people and you know their parents and their grandparents and their perhaps great-grandparents and and you can form judgments on that that may be accurate or may be off-base. Yeah, and I think also that we have to take some some time to reflect on ourselves as well and just think about, again, what are the challenges that we experience? What what what, what maybe acts, makes us act or, or causes us to behave in certain ways? And, and I think a lot of this is often factors beyond our own control, which we don't necessarily talk about enough. And I think this is a critical time to have these conversations as we're hearing about poverty more, as we're hearing about being low income, as we're hearing about the struggle to find safe, affordable housing, um, as we're hearing about families and communities and groups specifically, which I hope we can talk about as well, like specifically who are, who are really kind of experiencing these challenges given our current times at a heightened level than, than some others, and how we can kind of think about that and come together as a group or as a collective to, to, support, uh, to po- support everyone, and including ourselves, recognizing that we are all susceptible to various experiences, especially in this current kind of climate that we're living in. Yeah, and we'll explore that a little bit when we uh, come back after the break. Our guest today on On Target is Assistant Professor and Undergraduate Director of Criminology with Memorial University's Department of Sociology, Dr. Adrian Peters. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today on On Target is criminologist and associate professor at Memorial University, Dr. Adrian Peters. And uh, we're talking a bit about these StatsCan um, uh, statistics that came out not too long ago about a, a big increase in homicides in Newfoundland and Labrador in 2021. There were eight homicides. And granted, uh, Dr. Peters, that Newfoundland and Labrador has a small population, so any increase in homicides will drive up to percentages. But um, uh, eight lives lost is a notable increase. Absolutely. And I think that's really where a lot of our focus also has to um, be, be turned is to who are the individuals who are being victimized within these kind of experiences. And that's not always clear also even to identify. Um, we, we actually know from a lot of research on homicide specifically um, for individuals who are involved either on the side of the accused person or the individual who's been charged with this and then also the victims. They're incredibly complicated relationships oftentimes. And even even the, the practice or I guess the, the offense or the, the conduct of homicide or murder is quite misunderstood, I think, in terms of how we review those people who may be involved in those interactions. And, and oftentimes people aren't necessarily specializing. That's a word like that we use in criminology is like becoming a specialist in a certain type of crimes um, or legal conduct. And, and individuals who are often involved with homicide this is not kind of the main um, the main crux of their challenges or the, the main focus that we should really be turning our attention to. And instead, it's all of the experiences and also challenges that they had and perhaps also pre, like previous criminalization that they've had that then kind of culminates in this more, um, more violent and, and, and much more tragic outcome. 
I think humankind as a whole has mythologized this whole notion of um, who takes another's life, this whole notion of a stranger. You're always afraid of the unknown of, of a stranger. But the, as you just pointed out, um, most murders are conduct, um, happen in these very intricate, interconnected ways, if you know what I mean. It's very seldom uh, completely random and a, and a, and a stranger. Exactly, yeah. And we often use those narratives or storylines. Uh, they're salacious. They're, they're they're also protective. They help us feel a little bit safer. So they're used a lot in the media, like um, also like in the television shows, like from, from news to television shows and, and movies, that it's always kind of the unknown. But, but it should give some maybe peace in a way that it's actually very rarely an unknown and it's typically an acquaintance and, and in many cases a, a friend or family member. Um, so whether that's related to intimate partner violence and our, our very intimate and personal relationships, um, family members, and even if we extend this to kind of organized crime, that's also largely misunderstood in terms of how those individuals are interacting and engaging with one another and how homicide kind of plays out within, within the context of also organized crime or gang activities. And usually that's a very tight group as well. Exactly. It's people who know each other oftentimes and are, are, are assuming or believe that someone is associated with a certain group. So as, as we've pointed out, um, and we'll probably continue to point out time and time again, these aren't just stats. These are people with names and faces. And it, it didn't take me long to find many of these homicides, all of which occurred under a wide variety of circumstances. But what's contributing to that increase? They, uh, Statistics Canada has already said gang violence is not part of uh, what happened last year. What What was behind some of these? And I think that's where we need to start asking some bigger questions and, and, and backing up and zooming out from just our traditional ideas about who's involved in the justice system and, and why that might be. And for me, it really goes back as far as, like I suggested um, when we were speaking earlier about our everyday lives. Um, there's many, many theories in criminology, and I definitely encourage folks who are interested to come look at our programs at mine, um, just to put it that in there, that we can learn and talk with these theories. But there is also a lot of overlap in this theories, and a lot of it comes back to the daily strains and stressors that we feel as humans in our relations and, and on our own as individuals, and these connect to access to food, access to healthy food, so that we're able to go to school uh, awake and alert and nourished um, and able to then learn and grow and interact with one another. These come from, like I mentioned, affordable housing. We are in a housing crisis, um, and that is impacting our entire country, including Newfoundland and Labrador. If you don't have access to stable, safe, healthy housing, food, these are going to create stressors in people's lives that are going to impact their behaviors, their moods, how they're coping, how they're trying to address these kind of challenges. And then if we add to this now also our employment or unemployment rates, which as, as, as was shared just before we came on, are, are going down, which is encouraging, but they're still incredibly high. And then looking at our province specifically, we have historically had incredibly high rates of unemployment. And if we think about that, there's multiple reasons as to why folks are unemployed. And as we are seeing now, why folks cannot afford healthy food, safe housing. And I think we need to ask those questions and find out how we can be supporting more and more individuals in those key areas. Because then, like I said, that's going to contribute to how we then live our day-to-day lives, how we're able to engage with others in society, and how we're able to meaningfully engage with society ourselves. 
Lack of sleep is a big one as well. I was talking to somebody who was uh, heavily involved in uh, in a shelter here in St. John's uh, within the last couple of years, and uh, she said, don't underestimate how important it is to find a safe place to lay your head and to have that uninterrupted sleep. If you're sleeping rough or if you're sleeping in a shelter where there are a lot of other people and there's a lot of confusion and things going on at the time, and you don't feel safe, so you're not getting that safe sleep, uh, you're not able to get the sleep that you need, um, that helps to augment those feelings of fear, anxiety, stress, frustration, anger, you name it. Yes, and, and and sadly, we do know so many of those stories, like you just shared. It's one of many. Um, I know folks that I work with who are have been incarcerated in Her Majesty's Penitentiary in other parts of our province and also throughout Canada, actually, through my work, uh, and even, even, even those people who are living on our streets. So uh, one thing that I do when I go downtown often is, is I try to talk to people. And, and I've learned in recent weeks and months, actually, that many of the individuals who are living downtown on Water Street, out on the streets, who folks are maybe making various assumptions or judgments about they're actually choosing to live on the streets because they feel safer there than in some of our shelters. And again, this is not unique to our province. This is something I've heard about and learned in Ontario, in British Columbia, and it's, it's certainly impacting individuals across our country and throughout the world. So again, like the, like the basics every day, like, yes, like you said, like sleep, food, housing, reducing the stress on us, reducing um, the challenges also that we feel in providing for our family, recognizing that also many folks who are experiencing homelessness and or incarceration have families they have children and this is a very stressful time of year christmas in which individuals are trying to provide uh gifts and and good meals and and the stress and strain that that kind of brings with it can contribute to individuals seeking alternative ways to be able to provide those needs which may include uh, living on the streets and may include maybe stealing um and also going back to this homelessness piece we also know about many individuals living in our communities both here in Newfoundland and Labrador and my work in British Columbia and then elsewhere, who are also looking for ways to actually kind of get in trouble with the law and be flagged by the police so that they can be incarcerated, so that they can have those amenities that we just talked about, so that they can have food, they can have a bed to sleep in and get a full night's rest, so that they can feel safe and secure. So I think the fact that people are actually seeking out ways to criminalize themselves without doing it to the extreme where they're so criminalized that they get stuck, but they're doing that to find resources they don't otherwise have access to, which our governments and our social services and our communities should be providing. Absolutely. I've heard many, many times uh, people saying that they uh, wanted to get incarcerated just to avail of the programming that's available in our correction systems that is not available to them when they're outside of corrections. So that's pretty stark. So how does society address that as a whole? Are, Are we failing? We are absolutely not failing, um, but but it, it definitely can feel um, this, like distress. It's impacting all of us right now. We're all feeling this strain because it is at a global scale at the, at the moment. I mean, we're coming from a, a global pandemic, and we've all felt the impact of that, certainly to varying degrees, of course, but we've all felt the, the stress and strain that, that's happening right now. And so it's time like times like these in history. Like I just think about, again, my teachings, and we talk about everything from like Industrial Revolution, the World Wars, the Great Depression, but then also within that, how those 
periods of intense strain and feelings of instability actually also then led to periods of immense growth and and, and creation of new programming and new supports. So it's all about how we look at it. So I think if we start to see the impact of these kind of everyday challenges on everyone and how it connects to us, then collectively we can start working together more to start addressing some of these challenges. And no doubt uh, the pandemic has had an impact. Uh, There's little question about that. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is a criminologist and associate professor at Memorial University's Department of Sociology, Dr. Adrian Peters. We'll be back right after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Our guest today is criminologist and associate professor at Memorial University, Dr. Adrian Peters. And uh, Adrian, you um, you touched on this earlier, but what have we learned from previous post-pandemic periods? Have we seen similar trends to what we're seeing now globally? Yes, I think absolutely. And that's kind of the point to keep in mind and, and also to kind of temper our own fears and anxieties that this is kind of a natural cycle um, in society. Of course, we go through periods of immense growth and then periods of, of some decline and I think what's important to recognize is how like how fortunate we've been as a society for so long we're used to experiencing stability for quite a long time because I mean if we think about the early like the early 1800s and the early 1900s um, there there was a lot of instability and then also throughout the 1900s there was some periods of instability but by and large for the past couple of decades we've been pretty fortunate in the world and I think this is really kind of questioning that sense of security and safety that we once had um, but to not lose sight of the fact that we we, we are improving um, provincially, um, nationally, and then also globally. There, there have been large growth in our understanding, growth in science, and growth in how we even study and think about these these kind of metrics like crime rates and, and all of that. And uh, we're always uh, learning and relearning, aren't we? It seems that uh, after a couple of generations pass, we're, we're relearning a lot of the lessons that were learned ever so long ago. And I think that's a great way to frame it, is this relearning. I actually often teach about that in my classes. Sometimes the students are afraid to speak about something or they feel a little bit afraid to make a comment because they're afraid they're going to misspeak. I often remind them that that's the process of learning. And also, sometimes if we say something or even have kind of a, a weird feeling that even makes us feel a little bit off or not okay, that maybe that's even the process of unlearning, right? And, and sometimes it doesn't feel comfortable and it makes us feel anxious for a second. But if we think about it, it's really just us unlearning and relearning new information with our new science and our new ideas. So what is it uh, specific? Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was going to say, what is it specifically then about the pandemic that's been a contributing factor to some of these trends we're seeing uh, here and, and, and elsewhere? So I think it goes back to our discussions around food and housing and employment, which then feed into factors related to potential ways of coping with that. And and unfortunately, um, oftentimes when we are in periods of intense stress and strain or, or instability, that does increase, of course, our anxieties, which 
is actually related to our mental health and well-being and psychological health. So we're seeing increasing numbers of, of psychological and mental health needs among our populations, which I think were growing before the pandemic, and that just has simply exacerbated that. We're seeing rates um, and numbers related to suicide going up, um, numbers related to overdoses, and, and these are often numbers and or people that we never even hear about in our communities, um, and, and they're, they're, they're grappling with the strains and stressors. Um, and then we feed that into other ways of coping, which can lead to substance use, which includes, we cannot forget, alcohol. And, and alcohol is often a tool that we use to cope or various other substances, which combine with mental health challenges, as well as not having maybe a, a stable job or housing or food. It's the, it's the compounding of all of these experiences and events that can make us more and more likely to maybe turn to other avenues of, of trying to manage this. And then that feeds into potentially being criminalized, particularly if you're from um, a group that's been historically marginalized um, in our society, from our Indigenous persons, um, individuals who are Black, our LGBTQ um, plus communities, um, women. Uh, um, so again, it's, it's, it's thinking about the picture, the bigger picture, um, to, to kind of think about how this can all impact us um, in our smaller communities or as individuals in our families. What about, and you, you touched on it earlier, but what about the role of addictions uh, in particular? Because uh, we, we've seen this trend, I guess, in the last 10, 15 years, of this uh, post-oil boom trend, where we're seeing uh, an increasing number of uh, addictions in our community when the opioids started coming in in big numbers. Now, we've always had addictions, I understand that, but it seems like it really took off in the last uh, decade or so. And what kind of a role is that playing? Yeah, and, and if you think about the opiate crisis specifically, um, which started even before we we're, were talking about, so fentanyl has kind of taken the forefront within that discussion in carfentanil. But once upon a time, we were talking about OxyContin, and, and our province also uh, experienced that. So that was kind of how it all began. And, and these crises, based on what we understand now, actually came from healthcare. Um, so a lot of individuals who were perhaps dealing with various injuries that might have been work-related or related to their personal life and activities, who, who then were injured and, and sought support from their healthcare providers and were prescribed these very, very, very um, strong and potentially lethal um, prescriptions that then led to um, use and, and misuse by, by many individuals. Individuals, so not just individuals who we, again, typically think of when we think about addiction, but we need to expand who we think about is being impacted by that. And, and opiates are really important to look at. But I think we also just, again, just to emphasize the role of alcohol. And I'm just saying this, I'm, I'm the chair of FASDNL, um, so that's fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in Atlanta, Labrador. And so we do a lot of work related to alcohol specifically. Um, and I think that's that's where we need to focus because alcohol is in our everyday lives, um, in, our, in our families, whether we're using it or maybe our friends or family are using it. So it's, it's not always the, the starkest or the ones that are in the news often the most that we need to be focusing on. And our province, um, to speak about some of the great things that are happening here, there are so many exciting things happening related specifically to uh, suicide, first of all. We have an, an action plan related to that in our province, but then specifically to alcohol. Um, the Department of Health and Community Services with the provincial government has developed an alcohol action plan for the next five years for our province. And folks are coming together, interdisciplinary teams of experts, also keeping in mind that there's lived expertise, that lived experience, folks who are being directly impacted and living day in and day out with these challenges. We need to draw on their expertise as well as the expertise of individuals 
individuals who are working in this area and researching this and, and come together um, at, and the province is doing so um, with, with that action plan. Um, and then we also have um, another program in our communities, um, the, the Managed Alcohol Program that's offered through the St. John Status of Women's Council, um, really focused on harm reduction. So changing how we think about um, these substances or these tools that we use to cope, um, taking away the judgment, taking away the stigma so that people can actually go forward and say, I'd like to learn more about this. I may need some help in this area. Can you can you share more about that with me? Can I come here and not be judged and not feel like I need to hide what I'm actually going through? So we're seeing a lot of that changing and, and occurring in our province or locally, which is really great to see. Are we seeing similar trends in terms of um, uh, the statistics that uh, Statistics Canada has put out in other jurisdictions across Canada? Yes, absolutely, and not just across Canada, but throughout um, much of the world and at least our Western world. So um, I, I am very fortunate that I get to go to conferences each year, and a big one in particular is, is this big criminology co- conference that I attend in, in the U.S., and um it basically brings together anyone who works in and around criminological topics and themes in, in the world. And this was the consistent theme. Again, these numbers are going up everywhere. Um, it's impacting w- wide groups and multiple group groups, but again, historically marginalized groups, often the most, unfortunately, in, in lots of places. So this is not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador. What, what I like about our province, or what I think is, is unique about our province, though, is, is its size and going back to our strengths. And I think one difference that I see here, that I feel here and, and believe in here, is that our size is our strength and that there's more that we can do to reach out to individuals and groups who are being impacted. Yeah, and it's not just numbers here. They're your cousin, your sister, your friend, you know, uh, they're people you know. They are, and, and they're people we should all, like, get to know better, whether whether we're related to them or they're our neighbour and asking people their stories. That's how I've learned the most. I mean, I, I have my fancy statistics. StatsCan has their fancy statistics. We look at the numbers so often, but those numbers themselves are very narrow, and, and even the source is based only on official statistics, so we know that those numbers, there's a dark figure of crime, which represents most of offenses or experiences that are happening in this area that are not even reported. So the statistics that we often see are only official. So we need to go a step further and look for the stories and experiences of folks that are not being reported and then also hearing those stories. So talking, listening, asking questions. And that's how I often learn the most is hearing the stories of the youth, the young people that I worked with in British Columbia, hearing the stories of the individuals who have been incarcerated in Her Majesty's Penitentiary. They're teaching us every day and every week we go there um, what they're going through, how they're thinking about it, how they're feeling. And if we take the time, I think, to ask those questions and listen to their stories, we can start to open our minds to understanding a different a different story than what we've been previously told and or heard. Now, uh, we're talking about these specific um, stats that came out from 2021, but overall, in recent years anyway, the trend has been uh, towards a dramatic drop in violent crime. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And that has, and when we talk about trends and patterns, we're talking 10 plus years. So that's a very consistent pattern. 
Yeah, and it's it's quite stark actually. I've seen some of the stats both locally and and across Canada that show you know despite what you might the, the perceptions you might uh, take from the news or whatever the case may be, social media that uh, violent crime is actually way down from from levels where it was you know just a few decades ago. Yes, absolutely, and that and that speaks to our successes at our, our, our improving health systems, education, justice, and social systems. But it also speaks to the need to continue that momentum to keep that work going because now it's 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 more important now than ever as we start to experience these strains, because. I think what we're learning and what we know from historical examples is that the impacts of the pandemic and what is now um, also we have a war going on. There's a war going on in Ukraine. So these kind of phenomena are going to impact our, our people and our places for generations to come. And so this is now, I think, a call to action for us as humans um, to come together to work to find ways so that we can keep that safety um, and be reminded of, of how much safer and, and stable we, we are and to return to a state in which we can be supporting more individuals um, to return to that state at some point. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about your uh, conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and what you learned there, what was discussed when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is criminologist and associate professor at Memorial University, Dr. Adrian Peters. We'll be back right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we're back. My guest today on On Target, criminologist and associate professor at Memorial University, Dr. Adrian Peters. And uh, uh, Adrian, um, like all things, I suppose, over the last number of decades, we've been absolutely bombarded with information, media, politics from south of the border. And that can often skew our own views here in Canada, where things can be similar, but also quite different. Uh, And uh, we don't always take those things into account. Now, you just attended this uh, conference in Atlanta, Georgia. What did you learn there? Um, well, I learned so much, and I, I made this comment, I think, last week when I was speaking that I, I just, I wish I could take everyone because there's there's so much. It really, it's really an opportunity to kind of go hear people speak about any potential topic that's related to criminalization or the criminal justice system. And I think just by and large, the, the message that folks were, were having and hearing is that we need reform. We need to start thinking about how our justice system, or it's not really justice, it's, it's a legal system, um, and how this legal system is potentially contributing as well to how certain individuals and or groups are perhaps being criminalized um, and institutionalized in these processes. So um, just because of my interest, I, I, ten- I attended a lot of presentations about um, policing um, in that perspective. And so I think often we, we, we point our fingers at the police, and that was certainly a conversation and, and discussion point that was raised even during the pandemic was the defund the police movement, um, which has opened up conversations about what does that actually mean or look like. And defunding the police was never actually intentioned as a let's take money away from the police. It was let's think about where our money is going and where it maybe should be going to ensure that it's kind of the 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 right um, kind of groups and organizations that are responding to some of these needs. So going back to addiction and mental health, 
Well, as our laws currently stand, we often end up criminalizing folks for substance use um, and or selling substances. And then we also um, criminalize folks for acting in certain ways that can actually be simply a reflection of a, of a mental health or psychological health challenge or even a neurodevelopmental disability, um, such as FASD or autism or, or intellectual disabilities. And so these are not criminal matters. These are these are health-related issues and, and social-related issues. So that's kind of what's meant by, by reform in the justice system is, is allocating resources to new groups and or developing new partnerships between um, criminal justice players and professionals and those who are working in other facets of our health care, our education even, and our social and community systems. And, and again, I just um, I want to focus on the police a little bit because because they do get so much of the of the blame and, and are targeted. Um, these individuals are 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 encountering some of the most challenging and difficult situations every day in their work, and they take that home. And we often forget as well the role that the courts and our correctional systems play beyond the police. And so I think we need to also start questioning what's going before our courts. How are judges and lawyers also using this information in our new science and evidence to support their own cases so that we're not criminalizing individuals because they may have a neurodevelopmental disability or they may have a series of challenges that are not in and of themselves criminal? I guess what uh, augments, though, that that sense of fear uh, that you see, particularly in the United States, is is related to gun violence. And uh, when you're dealing with people who might be struggling in a variety of ways and you don't know whether or not they're armed (laughs) uh, in a country that is very heavily armed, I guess that just augments all of this. (laughs) I don't even know how to articulate it. And, and I think that's it. We, I mean, guns, they're, they're certainly um, something to be afraid of uh, if we're in a situation where there is a, a weapon of that nature where it is so lethal. But I think just going back to that fear, um, and, and which really comes from misunderstanding, is, is, is the, the kind of hardest piece for us to overcome. We, again, like our, our media and, and like this is the shows we watch to news media to social media, we, we tend to like being a little bit afraid even and buy into those, um, those, those feelings and, and certain stories that maybe make us feel that way. But I think it's, it's the fear that we have to start removing or, again, rethinking about in terms of why we might be afraid and is that actually a reason to be afraid about um, I actually walked around Atlanta a bit by myself, and I and I maybe shouldn't have, um, but I certainly was in situations where I encountered a lot of individuals who uh, I had this conversation actually with my family. I suspect I walked away from a, a big group that each of those persons had a gun on them, but because I was talking to them um, and engaging them in a way that was meaningful to them and asking them about themselves. Um, I didn't feel unsafe. I didn't feel at risk. Um, and not that I would encourage folks to do that. Like, definitely don't. Um, we, we cannot be approaching people, people on the streets necessarily. But we do have to start thinking about that fear and where it comes from and whether it's rational or if it's rooted maybe in some other pieces that have come from media, which often is also attached to discrimination and racism. And poverty, let's be clear, because you're not going to see a show about somebody who has a a high-paid lawyer preventing that from airing, if you know what I'm saying. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So you tend to see a lot of very marginalized people who don't have the ways and means to defend themselves um, showing up in a lot of these programs. 
Exactly, yes. And that's what we need to focus on, I think, in our communities. Again, who's showing up? Why are they showing up? And then are our services actually meeting the needs that they have? Um, and that's another thing that came up from this conference. So ACEs or adverse childhood experiences also impact how we think about and see the world and then also our future actions and, and experiences. And, and one thing that's happening in that kind of research is that they're expanding it to not just look at the 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 measures that are including this type of violence or being exposed to violence in the home or having weapons in the home and those types of incidents, but adding cultural to that. So cases is what they're calling it. So adding cultural adverse childhood experience. So that do look at take into account like racial factors, um, ethnicity, that take into account poverty, that take into account these stressors and strains that folks experience in families and groups um, who might be low income or underemployed. And it's so complex in the United States. It's just intrinsic to the history and and knowing migrations and Jim Crow laws and all of those things that contribute to marginalizing people in some very profound and unfair ways. Um, if we can bring it back to Newfoundland and Labrador for a moment from uh, last year's statistics. Uh, statistics Canada says none of the homicides, eight homicides in Newfoundland and Labrador last year were related to gang activity. Is that an anomaly? And what does it say? Um, and that this this also go, going back to the history. So I mean, the history of the U.S. is certainly different than ours. But we cannot forget that our our country has also um, marginalized and discriminated against certain groups, particularly with our indigenous population. So our history is also an important piece that we need to look at and reflect on. And reconciliation um, through the truth and reconciliation calls to action of our of our federal government and of our country are are, are necessary as well in this process of reform. But if we think about then locally in terms of the homicide numbers and organized crime just historically we haven't had the same level of organized crime within our province um, like it does exist in Ontario and British Columbia where some of those uh, numbers and increases were coming from and so that's kind of by research back in British Columbia I did research with um, youth who were involved in organized crime groups there and not just street level gangs um, sadly but actually um, kind of higher level mid and and upper level organized crime groups and they've historically existed there for much longer and have a stronger history. And there's individuals who move from around the world, actually, to go um, do their business, organize crime in, in Ontario and in, in British Columbia, more than they have in Newfoundland and Labrador. But as the, as the demand for drugs and also our criminalization of drugs continues, and also then the demand for weapons such as firearms, also the demand for things like sex and, and people, um, as long as those demands continue to exist and we continue to criminalize them, there's going to be an avenue for organized crime to not only exist, but also flourish. So I think that's what the police um, and our system kind of here need to look out for now is how do we kind of ensure that we're not encouraging or welcoming that type of behavior or the development, I guess, of those groups in our province as much as they have in other provinces. But that's very difficult because as long as, like I said, the demand is there, they're going to supply that demand. And and so it's, again, shifting how we think about some of these challenges and whether or not the criminal approach is the best and most effective. But is it troubling to know that we had this significant increase in in homicides last year and it wasn't related to gang activity? Uh, We talked about the the pandemic and its effects and the other social aspects there. Is that troubling? I think this goes back to looking at our relationships. We have a lot of um, intimate partner violence that also came out in the StatsCan report um, nationally, but also in our province. And so to me, I think a lot of those numbers we're seeing is related to 
internal conflicts within families, within friend groups um, or community groups or acquaintance groups. Um, And again, oftentimes when there's a homicide, there is a drug involved, whether that's alcohol or what we sometimes view as as, um, more serious drugs. But again, I think alcohol is the serious drug. And so oftentimes it's folks who might have that might be having a tumultuous time in their relationship and or coping with various substances that then can be reflected, sadly, in homicide numbers. And I think it's important to watch it, to, to see if this continues, um, but also to find out what are the underlying causes that are contributing to these incidents unfolding in such tragic ways. And uh, we've only got uh, about three minutes left, which is kind of unfair, I suppose. But uh, I always try to ask uh, any profs at uh, Memorial University what they're currently researching or working on. What are you working on right now? I'm so glad that you asked that. I'm working on too many things, but I'm going to focus on one. Um, So just going back to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and and the group that I'm a part of here with FASDNL, we're actually in the process of organizing a conference um, within our province. It's going to be hosted here in St. John's, um, Newfoundland and Labrador in May 2023. And and we've learned from our own work related to FASD that, again, like you said, and like we've been talking about, these issues are so complex and so interrelated. So we need to zoom out. So we've zoomed out and we've called our our conference reducing harms in atlantic communities synthesizing voices in health equity fasd and trauma and so we're inviting folks and really working with our communities and our community groups to bring together researchers but also lived expertise and experience and everyone working in the communities to come to our conference so that we can start having more and more of these conversations together uh, with everyone at the table. So, so if, if folks are interested or feel like they might have an interest in attending or presenting, um, that's kind of our main focus area of our work right now. And we really encourage you to check us out on our website at FASDNL um, and check out that conference and some of our work in that area. Um, when and where? St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, May 24th to 27th, 2023. So it will be, loc- we'll be hosting it um, through Memorial University at the Signal Hill campus um, right here in St. John's. And participants from across the country, uh, beyond? Atlantic communities is the focus. Participants can be from anywhere, but with a focus on Atlantic research and or experience in Atlantic communities. Because, again, we're trying to hone in on some of our, our uniqueness and rurality of that and I know it's a passion project of you, yours, so um, uh, where can people get information on FASD? So, yeah, please check us out at FASDNL.ca. Feel free to contact myself as well. My contact information is all available through Memorial University um, on our website and the Department of Sociology as well. Um, but I encourage you folks to, to reach out anytime. Dr. Adrian Peters, a fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed uh, this today and uh, um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and for your wonderful questions. Thank you. And we'll be back on Monday. We're going to talk about education uh, with uh, Trent Langdon of the um, Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association. So stay tuned for that. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening.